Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And while you're turning, I'm going to ask you, do you recognize the Left Behind series? Do you recognize that name, the Left Behind series? You should because it's one of the most popular selling Christian book series in all of history. 80 million copies of the Left Behind series written by Tim LaHaye, who was a pastor, and then after he retired from the pastorate, became an author. Well, actually, he was an author even before he retired from the pastorate. But Tim LaHaye wrote those. Tim LaHaye died in 2016 at the age of 90. But he, along with Jerry Jenkins, wrote the Left Behind series, maybe the largest selling Christian series of all time. It focused on the return of the Lord in the rapture, and then the Antichrist and the tribulation and, and then the second coming of the Lord. That apocalyptic series was immensely popular, which tells us that people in general, wasn't just read by Christians by any means, that people in general, but maybe Christians particularly, have a great interest in understanding God's plan for the future. So that's what we're discussing. We started last week a series on eschatology, eschatos, is simply the Greek word meaning last or last thing. So eschatology is the study of last things. And we started that last week and we learned why it's important to study prophecy. And I think I mentioned several reasons, but I'll just review three of them. Number one, it occupies a significant place in Scripture throughout the Old Testament of course, the prophets, major and minor, and throughout the New Testament, prophecy really occupies a great presence in all of literature. And prophecy is unique to Christian literature because it tells the future. We often say prophecy is history pre-written, and that's true. Now, other religions don't have prophecy because they don't have a real God that can tell the future. So number one, it occupies a significant place in Scripture. Second, it explains the Christian worldview. Every religion has a worldview. Matter of fact, every person really has a worldview whether they realize it or not. But the Christian worldview is at least explained in part by understanding the last things. Worldview deals with origins. Where did I come from? Identity, who am I? Purpose, why am I here? Morality, how should I live? And destiny, those five things are worldview explained. So obviously the fifth one there, destiny is explained in the Christian worldview in a large part through prophecy, through eschatology. And everything is wrapped up in prophecy in the end times. Number two, it is necessary to explain the Christian worldview. Number three, it changes the way we live here and now. Those of us who have this hope within us, John says, purify ourselves. We live in light of eternity. We have to live in this world, but we live in light of eternity, being with our Lord, receiving our rewards, that this is not all there is. So it changes how we live here and now. Today, and I've titled this series on eschatology, God's Revelation Concerning the Future. 
Last week we looked at kind of an overview, why it's important, etc., and some amazing prophecies. The city of Tyre that was prophesied would be destroyed. We talked about that. I read to you one of the most amazing prophecies in Scripture. So God deals with future events. He deals with future people. He deals with nations. But we're looking now today at the major events on the horizon this week, next week, maybe a third week. So today we're going to look at the rapture and some other topics as well, the uh, judgment seat of Christ and then the marriage supper of the Lamb. Turn with me, First Thessalonians chapter 4. It's a familiar portion of Scripture probably to many of us. I'll begin reading at verse 13. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. That's the word uninformed, untaught, not ignorant like you're stupid. It's uh, uninformed. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren. By the way, Paul was at the church at Thessalonica only about a month, but he taught them about the Lord's return in the short time that he was there planting that church. New believers, short period of time with the apostle Paul, but they knew something about the fact that the Lord is coming back. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. A Jewish euphemism for those who have died in the Lord, those who've died in Christ. Those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope, because we do have hope. So we don't sorrow like lost people. We sorrow, but not like them. Verse 14, for if we believe, and that word if is our word for since or because of, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Your loved ones who've already died are coming back with the Lord when he returns for us. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So this is new information that was given to Paul, and he passes it on to them. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, Paul believed that the Lord was coming back in his time, imminency, in other words. For we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, will by no means proceed, go before those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, these accompanying signs and sounds. The Lord will see him. There will be a shout from him. There will be the voice of the archangel. There will be the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have been in the grave, their bodies will be resurrected. Then we who are alive, that's the second aspect of the rapture, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Verse 18, wherefore, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, that's the first Thessalonians passage. Turn with me back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll just read a few verses there as well. 1 Corinthians 15, you recognize as the resurrection chapter, and Paul in this earlier book in our Bible deals with it as well. Verse 51, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says, behold, I show you a mystery. What is a mystery in the New Testament? Something that was not known prior to, but in this age, God explains it to us. He gives us information. So I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, will not all go to our grave, but we shall all be changed. 
and I'll all sleep in the grave. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, nanosecond, at the last trump that he refers to in First Thessalonians, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. We'll get our new, redeemed, immortal bodies. By that he's saying we shall all be changed. So let's talk about the rapture. The New Testament teaches the principle of the imminency of the coming of our Lord. Imminency is the idea that Christ could come for his own at any moment. In other words, there's no prophecy that is waiting to be fulfilled before the Lord returns. It isn't like certain things have to happen. There are several things that are going to have to happen, but it's at the return of Christ, not the rapture. The rapture, he comes in the air. The return of Christ, he comes to the earth. Don't confuse those two terms so the Bible makes distinctly different. That is why we are commanded to be ready, to have our lamps lit, to be living for the Lord. So we're not ashamed, the Bible says, at his coming. In other words, we're to live every day in light of the fact that today, tonight, tomorrow, Jesus could come. We believe clearly the principle of imminency as the Bible teaches. No prophecy waiting to be fulfilled. Rapture. You say, well, wait a minute, I don't see rapture in the Bible. Rapture is simply the English translation of the Greek phrase, Okay. Rapturo, or it means to snatch away, to pluck up, it's sometimes translated, to snatch away or to pluck up. That's the word that's used right here in First Thessalonians, that he's going to pluck us up. He's going to snatch us away. This is when Christ returns in the air and snatches away all the church-age saints, most of whom we would say have already died. And their bodies in the grave, their soul is to be with the Lord. In a future message, I'm going to deal with where are we in this intermediate state. People who die, their bodies in the ground, and their soul is with the Lord. What's the procession there? So he's going to return and snatch away uh, all of the church age saints. That means from the beginning at Pentecost, that's when the church was formulated, Peter's sermon, Acts chapter 2, from Pentecost forward until the rapture, all the church-age saints, whether they're alive or they're dead, their bodies are going to be resurrected and glorified and taken to heaven. So both dead and alive. And he tells us the order. The dead will rise first out of the graves, and then those of us who are alive will be changed, translated, transformed, and taken to heaven in the same nanosecond. They're just a nanosecond ahead of us. Now, hermeneutics, you're familiar with that term, probably most of you. Hermeneutics, homiletics. Homiletics is preaching. Hermeneutics is interpretation of the scriptures. Hermeneutics is important in understanding the Bible. Hermeneutics is important in understanding prophecy. Maybe we'd say doubly so. Hermeneutics is important. That's the science of interpretation and understanding of the Bible. And our hermeneutic here at Red Rocks, like tens of thousands of other churches, we believe in a premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture. Well, let me back up and explain those terms if you're not familiar with them. Pre-tribulation, that means that the Lord is coming back in the rapture before the millennial kingdom is established on earth. And pre-tribulation 
We believe in a pre-tribulational rapture means that the Lord is coming back before the seven-year tribulation, which precedes the millennial kingdom. We are pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapturist because that's what the Bible teaches, and I'm convinced of that completely. And by the way, others may not, but that doesn't make them a non-Christian if they believe in a different view of the rapture or the Lord's coming. It's just that they have a different view, which is, I believe, not supported in Scripture, okay? Because just in these two passages, it seems to be very clear to me. After the church is taken out of the world, after the rapture takes place and the believers are taken out of this world, what does the Bible tell us? That God pours out his wrath on unbelieving mankind. Matter of fact, it says that Satan will convince them of a lie. Now, in recent days, we've been told a lot of lies. Okay? I'm not going to get off on that. Don't, don't make me go there, Okay? But we've been taught a lot of lies. It kind of reminds me that people will believe a lie very easily if it's promoted and promulgated. But the Bible tells us that they will, in Thessalonians it says, they will believe a lie about where did all the Christians go? Uh, whatever happened to them? Somehow they're going to be told a lie, and then the Antichrist begins to make his ascension. And God pours out his wrath upon unbelievers during that period of time called the tribulation, the second half of the seven weeks that Daniel has left for us in Daniel chapter 9. The last seven weeks of Jewish history and prophecy are dealing with Israel. All of that section in Daniel chapter 9 is dealing with Israel. We're living in a parenthesis, and we'll talk about this, between the 69 weeks and the 70th week, okay? And that last week, a week in, in the Bible can mean a week of days or a week of years. So that last seven years is what's called the tribulation. And God is dealing with the Jews because the church, the Gentile church is gone. And he's fulfilling his last prophecy with the Jews. The last seven years that the Jews are on, on earth and doing what God has told them to do. And by the way, they're going to be converted in mass, the Bible says. They will turn their eyes upon him whom they pierced, the Bible says, and they will believe. And out of them come the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll maybe get to that at some point here in the future. God has not ordained that his church, his bride, his beloved, would go through his wrath. Wrath is poured out on unbelievers. Those who've rejected God. Those who say no to God. Those who believe the lie of Satan. Matter of fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9 says to, and Paul is comforting Christians, he says, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, that believers are not destined for God's wrath, but unto salvation. That's a key verse. We're not destined for wrath. God's wrath is he pours it upon the earth. We're destined for salvation. And by the way, I see that over and over in Scripture. Let me give you some examples, that precedent, that example in Scripture. Okay? Noah. Noah and his family, the family of eight. God says, I'm going to pour out my wrath upon the unbelieving world. Only eight believers were alive on the earth. Only eight people that believed in God. And so what does God do? 
he puts Noah into an ark. He has him build him an ark to preserve mankind. He puts him in an ark and he lifts him out of the wrath of God, the flood that destroyed the world. That's one example. Let me give you another example. Lot. Lot was living in Sodom and Gomorrah, wonderful picture of, uh, of the world in that day and maybe the world our day. But the Bible tells us that Lot was a believer. He wasn't a great believer. I mean, he wasn't a, a sterling example of, of Old Testament Judaism, that's for sure. He was a backslidden believer, but he was a believer. The Bible says that the sin in Sodom vexed his righteous soul. So what does God do for Lot? He plucks him out of Sodom and Gomorrah with his wife and two of his daughters before he rains down his wrath upon Sodom and Gomorrah. A second example, a third example, Israel and Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. You know that. What does God do when he brings the 10 plagues upon Egypt? He has Israel protected, living in the land of Goshen. And when he pours out his wrath upon Egypt and literally destroys Egypt, when he destroys Egypt, he protects his people and he takes them through even the water and puts them into the desert and he protects his people. Uh, We see it over and over. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, one more example. Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are written to the seven churches of Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. And he gives them instruction. He gives them correction. God speaks to the seven churches. After that, the church is not mentioned ever again in Revelation, where God is pouring out his wrath upon the world. The church is not mentioned again until chapter 19 and chapter 20 when they're in the millennial kingdom. God is pouring out his wrath on the earth. The church is not there. They're in heaven And then the church is mentioned again in the millennial kingdom. So those are about four or five examples, as well as the scriptures, that we're not appointed unto wrath. So as I said, hermeneutics is important. And we take a dispensational view of the scriptures. We're dispensationalists. Now, you may not be real familiar with that term. The biggest thing to remember about dispensationalists, we take a literal, historical, grammatical view of the scriptures. A literal, historical, grammatical view. Now, when it comes to prophecy and there's some pictures or allegory, obviously we interpret it according to that genre of literature. But we take a literal, historical view of the Scripture. Why is that important? Because we don't believe that Israel and the church are synonymous, as a covenant theologian would, okay? And I'm not trying to be offensive here as Presbyterians would. They are covenant in their theology. So they say the church is Israel, it's just Israel in the New Testament. And the church is Israel in the Old Testament. No, no, no. We don't believe in replacement theology. And why is that important? Because all of the promises to Israel that were given to Israel, to David, and to all the Israelites, they're not yet fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. The Bible says that Jesus will reign on the throne of David for a thousand years. That's not just happy talk. That is literal prophecy that will be fulfilled. That's because we're literalists. They would explain that away. They would say, well, God is ruling. He is ruling from his kingdom in heaven. 
No, we believe the Bible teaches it will be, because it says so, it will be a thousand-year reign on earth. We take a dispensational view of the Scripture. Israel and the church are separate entities. Let me elaborate on that. Membership in Israel was ethnic and political. You were born a Jew, and it was political in the sense that God was ruling over. It was a theocracy. We don't have a theocracy today. It was ethnic and political. Membership in the New Testament is by regeneration. And by subsequent baptism, you join the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 and verse 38. So the church has not replaced Israel. God will fulfill all of his yet unfulfilled promises to Israel. You might be thinking, Pastor, why are you getting worked up into a lather about this? What's the big deal? Okay. As dispensationalists, we take that literal, grammatical, historical view of the Scriptures versus an allegorical view. Do you realize that many churches take an allegorical view? They spiritualize all of prophecy. And I've already mentioned the Presbyterian because they're amillennial. You may not be familiar with that term. We're premillennial. That means the Lord's coming back before the millennium. Many of the great evangelists were post-millennial. You realize that Dr. Bob Jones Sr., Billy Sunday, and all of them, they were all post-millennial. They believed that the Lord was coming back at the end of the millennial kingdom because they were having such great revivals. Hundreds of thousands of people were getting saved, and they believed that everybody, through the preaching of the gospel on earth, was going to get saved, and then the Lord would come back because the kingdom had been established through the preaching of the gospel, and then World War I happened. And then World War II happened. And that's where we are now. The world isn't getting better. The world's getting worse. So they were post-millennial, amillennialists. Ah means no or none. Amillennials say there is no millennial kingdom. Many churches, even evangelical churches, don't believe in a millennial kingdom. When they come to prophecy, they interpret allegorically. They spiritualize it. They say, wait a minute, God is ruling. There is a kingdom. The kingdom's on earth, and he's ruling from heaven. Yes, there is a spiritual kingdom aspect, but the Bible says he's going to rule on earth for a thousand years and to prove that no matter what the situation is, mankind always rebels. And he does. We have a sinful heart. <clears throat> God set mankind up in the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect environment. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned. Then he had the patriarchal period, the patriarchal dispensation. Mankind sinned. Then he gave us the law. And he says, this is how I want you to live. How did mankind deal? His evil heart, he sinned. Now we're in the church age. He's given us a full revelation, the Old and New Testament. Man's sinful heart, we rebel. We come to the millennial kingdom. Everything, paradise is restored. God's on the throne. Earth is perfect. And what does mankind do? At the end, Satan is let loose for a little while, and there is a rebellion against God. It isn't our environment that's the problem. It is our heart that's the problem. And that's what he's illustrating through the various dispensations that our problem is a heart problem. Most covenant theologians, many different kinds of denominations, allegorize or spiritualize the 
prophetic texts resulting from their amillennial position. They don't believe in a millennial kingdom, and they don't believe in a rapture, and they don't believe in a tribulation literally on earth. Because of their position, they spiritualize the text. They allegorize the text. And by the way, they not only do that with prophecy, but many times they also have, not all of them, but some allegorize creation. They don't believe in a literal seven-day creation. It does matter. Theology does matter. Your hermeneutics do matter. That's why we're sticking to a literal, grammatical, historical position when it comes to interpreting the scriptures. I want you to see, turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. This would be one of many passages that they would swallow hard on and spiritualize, allegorize. Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 down to verse 6. Now, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys to the bottomless pit, and a great chain was in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, who has been bound in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he would not deceive the nations anymore till the thousand years were finished. Now, how do you interpret that but a thousand years? This is the way we would say when it comes to creation, a 24-hour day, day one, day two, etc. So that he should not deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and them that sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast nor his enemies. So we're talking about the martyred saints that give their lives during the tribulation and had not received the mark of the beast on their forehead or on their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ. What does it say? For a thousand years. But with the rest of the dead did not live again. That's the lost did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection and blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. That's when the Lord comes back and we're are translated out of the grave and reunited with our souls. If we've died in the church age, the second death has no power, but that they should be priests to God in Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. I don't know how you can explain that away. And the only way they can do it is to spiritualize it or to allegorize it. Okay? So we believe in a literal return of Christ in the air called the rapture. A literal tribulation on earth, we're going to talk about that, and a little literal thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth, and we believe in a literal heaven, okay? Second, let's talk about the judgment seat of Christ. I'm not going to spend much time here. <laughs> let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. It's a complementary passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. So we're, we've talked about the rapture. And we're going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ now, and then we're going to finish up with the marriage supper of the Lamb. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 9, we'll just read two verses. Paul says, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing in him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in his body according to that which he had done, whether it be good or bad. We read 1 Corinthians 3 earlier, which expounds upon it more. But the judgment seat of Christ, and don't make any mistake, is the judgment for Christians. 
the judgment for Christians. In the Greek and Roman culture, the Bema Seat, sometimes this is called the Bema Judgment. The Bema Seat was a high throne, a high position where the judge could watch the competitors, the racers, the wrestler that was going on down below. And he could see everything. If they made an infraction, broke the rules, he could see that. So he was sitting in the Bema seat, the judgment seat, it was called. And that's also where he handed out the rewards. We would think of trophies, but they wore a garland wreath. They were handed out at the Bema seat or the judgment seat. So Paul takes that very idea and applies it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Christians. Someday we're going to stand before God. And he elaborates that in 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. Remember, you've heard me say it probably many times. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of dedication for Christians. The great white throne judgment, GWT, is a judgment of damnation for lost people. One is for the saved, one is for the lost. And we'll talk about the great white throne judgment at some point in the future. So we're not being judged for our sins. The Bible says in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're not being judged for sins. Those were judged at the cross. This is where we receive our reward for what we did for God. So as believers live their lives, they build upon, as it says here in 1 Corinthians, they build upon the foundation stone, which is Jesus Christ. Other foundation can no man lay than that which has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he's the chief cornerstone. And Peter says, we're lively stones. We're building upon that uh, foundation that Jesus laid when he died on the cross and he purchased our salvation. And what does he tell us in that 1 Corinthians 3 passage? He says, either we're building with gold silver and precious stones or wood, hay, and stubble. Gold, silver, and precious stones are that which is valuable and that which is durable. Wood, hay, and stubble is what? That which is common, you can find that on the ground. Wood, hay, and stubble, that's just laying around. Not gold, silver, and precious stones. Wood, hay, and stubble is common. It's found in any farmyard. And it's not only common, it's flammable. It'll burn up. So he says we're either, using that as the illustration, we're either building things that are permanent, that are going to go through the furnace of God's fiery furnace, or we're building with stuff that's going to be burned up and there's no reward. There's nothing for God to work with, in other words. That's what he's telling us. The fire of God will test and destroy that which he says here is bad. That's just talking about wrong motive, that which is, that has no value in the passages that deal with the judgment seat of Christ. It's telling us we can either labor with wrong motives or for God's glory. Everything that we do, what you do tomorrow, is either for God's glory or for selfish interest. So he's saying, when it comes to building, build for God's glory, that which is gold and silver and precious stone, that which is valuable, that which is durable, where he will use that and reward us. We have to ask ourselves all the time, am I living, am I serving in my own strength and for my own purposes, or am I living, serving 
for God's glory. Because it's a motive question. It's not so much what you do, although that's a factor. It's not so much what you do, it's why you do what you do. It's a motive factor. Am I doing this for the glory of God? Or it's because I want a pat on the back or, hey, look there, hey. You know, that's not necessarily bad. But why are we doing what we're doing? And what does the Bible tell us? If we're going to do it for God's glory, that means we utilize the Word of God and we follow the Holy Spirit. We live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you've heard me talk about this. If we're going to receive eternal reward, we're saying, okay, what does God say? I have to know the Word of God and act accordingly. I utilize the Word of God in my life, and then I live my life in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in the power of flesh, not in the power of my own strength. So we say, did we live and serve in our own strength or by relying upon the Holy Spirit and the Word of God? And the results of this judgment determines whether believers will receive, what does he say, reward or suffer loss? We're either going to be rewarded or we're going to suffer loss. Now, we're going to lose our salvation. He makes that abundantly clear in both passages. The rewards seem to be in the nature of crowns. Now, I will say, I think it's somewhat veiled, but the Bible talks about seven different crowns in the New Testament. So, God takes our worthy work that goes through the fiery test and he fashions crowns. Not so we can go around heaven and say, <laughs> didn't do much, huh? Look at me. Look at these crowns. That just doesn't seem to fit in the scenario of heaven, does it? You know, where it's self-glory. I don't think there's going to be any self-glory in heaven at all. And to further illustrate that, what does the Bible say? That we take our crowns, Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, and we cast them at Christ's feet. What is that saying? What does that mean? Well, everything that I did do for God's glory, I did it by the help of his Holy Spirit and in accordance with his word. And so I cast them at his feet. That is a statement of humility. God, except for your grace, I couldn't have done anything. Paul says that very thing. I labored more abundantly than them all, but it was not me, but God that worketh in me. We cast our crowns at his feet, which is the ultimate act of worship in heaven. We say, God, everything that was accomplished on earth by my hand, it was by your Holy Spirit's help in accordance with the word, and I worship you for it. You saved me by your grace, and you enabled me to serve you by your grace. It's an act of worship. It also, from what the Bible says in several passages, seems to determine these crowns our type of service throughout the millennial kingdom. Now, we're going to be pointed over many cities or a few cities. Luke chapter 19, 11 through 19. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. We don't have time to turn to it, but you can look them up as well as many other passages. It seems to indicate our faithfulness to the Lord, our service to the Lord with the right spirit, right attitude determines our capacity throughout the thousand year, the millennial reign, and how God uses us in a place of service. Well, let me move quickly to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is a passage we often read at funerals. I've read it hundreds of times probably. It says, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is speaking here to his disciples. He's entering into this. He's in his last week. He's, they're worried. He's leaving. He keeps saying, I'm leaving you. 
I, the Son of Man must go the way of all flesh. You must die. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, if that wasn't the case, I would have told you by now. If it were not the case, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and then receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Turn with me to Ephesians. Look at one more passage here, Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read just a couple of verses, 25 through 27. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, and he gave himself for it, that he might sanctify, make holy, and cleanse her with a washing of water by the word, so that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Upon these two passages, let's talk about the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the New Testament, the relationship of marriage is used to describe the insoluble union between Christ and the church, between Christ, the groom, and his bride. He says that several times, and if we have time, we'll look at Revelation 19 and read about that. But understanding the marriage custom in the Bible really, really helps us understand eschatology in these end-time events. So let me explain that. Many of you are quite familiar. Understanding the marriage custom in the Bible helps us understand prophecy. The first step in the union in a Jewish culture, the first step in the union began sometime before the actual marriage when the couple, sometimes very young, young teenagers or even earlier, entered into a betrothal relationship along with their parents, along with their family, that boy and that girl entered in what was called, and you know it from the Bible, a betrothal relationship. And it was agreed upon. This involved the bride, the groom, their family, with a pledge to marry. And often a payment, most always a payment, it might have been small if they were poor, but a payment of a dowry. So a payment for that wife. They were making a payment, to receive her into their family. They weren't buying her, but they were making a dowry payment. At this point, the couple was considered married. They were considered in a union together. They were legally bound together in that betrothal relationship. And to break that covenant would be viewed as divorce. Now, you know that because you know in the Gospels, Joseph and Mary were betrothed. They had entered into that covenant. And then Joseph does what? He finds out through word of mouth that Mary is pregnant, that she's with child. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says, then he decided that he would put her away secretly. To put her away is a Greek phrase, which means to divorce. He was deciding now he was going to divorce her, not publicly, but privately. He loved her. He didn't want to embarrass her, didn't want to hurt her, but she was pregnant by some other man, he assumed. Then the angel of God appears to him and say, Joseph, don't worry about taking Mary. She's not been with another man. That's her pregnancy is because of the Holy One of God has descended upon her. And then Joseph surrenders, says, well, this is different, but 
I'll accept. And so he surrenders to God. So he was getting ready to put her away privately to divorce her. Betrothal, that was as good as married, but they weren't living together yet in a betrothal relationship. But to break that was a divorce. After the betrothal, the groom would go home and begin preparing a place for his bride. Usually it was an addition onto his father's house. So he would be building a bedroom or uh, maybe a bedroom and a little kitchen area onto his father's house for his bride. It was not uncommon for that to take a year, sometimes more, sometimes less, but it's not uncommon for that process, that betrothal process, to be a year to pass between the betrothal and the wedding. And when the groom was ready, his house was prepared, he was financially ready, he would gather his wedding party, his groomsmen, we call them. He would gather his groomsmen, and often in the night, not always, but he would often come with no announcement to his bride. He would come, and they would come with great fanfare, coming through the streets of his during the daytime, making noise, singing song with great fanfare, and he would arrive at his betrothed home and call her down, and that means she always had to be ready. She had to go to bed with curlers in her hair. She had to look good all the time, you know, because you never knew when the husband was going to arrive. He could arrive at any time, and he didn't announce it, but when they heard him coming, they scrambled and made order out of chaos, which, by the way, is what the word cosmetic means. Cosmetic means to be order out of chaos. So when her wife puts the cosmetics on, she's bringing order to her face. Just aside there, I thought you would appreciate that. So he comes to his bride's home. She always had to be ready to take her away to the wedding feast where all the guests would be gathered and the celebration would begin. The union of Christ and his church parallels that Jewish wedding tradition. By his death on the cross, what did Jesus do? He paid the dowry. By his death on the cross, he paid the dowry. He paid the cost of everyone who is willing to put their faith in him and become a part of his bride, the church. He paid the dowry. Everyone who would receive him by faith. Christ has not yet come. He's not yet come for his beloved in the rapture. What does that tell us? Exactly what he says here in John chapter 14, that he's preparing a place for us. Jesus was a carpenter on earth. He's preparing a place for us in the meantime. He is sanctifying the church. That's what the bride was doing. She was preparing herself to look her very best. He is sanctifying his bride by adding members, by people getting saved and being added to the church, and by making the church holy without spot or blemish, it says here in Ephesians chapter 5. Without spot or blemish. In the culmination of the wedding was a feast that usually lasted in the Jewish culture for several days. Drinking, eating, dancing, festivities. Matter of fact, that's where Jesus performed his first miracle. Remember John chapter 2, the wedding feast at Canaan of Galilee? They ran out of wine, and his mother comes to him and says, they're out of wine. Jesus says, what do I have to do with you? But then he listened to his mother, as any good boy would. He listens to his mother, and 
and he turns the water into wine. Uh, and they were stunned. They said, this is such good wine. Why did you save it to the end? Jesus began his public ministry by performing that first miracle at a wedding feast. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 19, and we're done for today. Revelation chapter 19 records for us the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're kind of jumping in mid-passage here. Revelation 19, 7 says, let us be glad and rejoice. Let's celebrate wedding supper. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Lamb of God, he's the Lamb of God to those of us who are believers. He's the lion to those who are unbelievers. The Lamb of God, the, the groom has come for his bride. And it's time to celebrate. The Lamb of God has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, the best of material in that day. Fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's us. Believers in the New Testament era, we've trusted the Lord. We're a part of the bride. We're a part of the church. And we're waiting for the Lamb to appear. And he says to me, these are the true sayings of God. So Revelation 19 records for us the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. This is not the only place, but one of them. And it occurs after the rapture, after the judgment seat of Christ, when the bride has been rewarded and dressed in, as it says here, fine linen, which represents the righteous deeds of the saints. So we're all dressed up. It's a match made in heaven. And it's going to come to pass. I wouldn't want to be anything but a literalist. It's the plain understanding of the scriptures. Not reading into the text, that's eisegesis, not exegesis. That's eisegesis, where you read your ideas into the text. We're exegetes. We read the scriptures, we study them, and we take them at face value. We're done. Obviously, I have to say there are many differences between the union of Christ and the church and between a human marriage on earth. We understand that. I don't think I need to go there in any detail. But the important aspect to grasp is that Christ's great self-sacrificing love for the church, Ephesians 5.25, he gave himself for the church. He has a great self-sacrificing love for the church. He is preparing to receive his bride in heaven. He's preparing to receive his bride, the church, John chapter 14. I go and prepare a place for you. And the unending fellowship between Christ and the church will go on throughout eternity. Those are the things to grasp on these first three eschatological key events that we've talked about today, the rapture, the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll come back and talk about the tribulation and some other things in the days ahead. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll help us to be prepared for the marriage supper of the Lamb, that we'd be prepared for the judgment seat of Christ. I have to ask the 
folks that are gathered here today, Lord, because it's, it's compelling, are you ready? Are we ready to meet the Lord? Are we ready to meet him in the air in the rapture? Are we ready to meet him at the bema seat and the judgment seat? And are we ready to sit down with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb? If not, help us to get ready. There's someone here today that doesn't know you as Savior. May this be the day they put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to know him aright. For the rest of us, Lord, it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to forget of the coming events that are of stupendous importance to every believer. Helps to live in light of them. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.